this week on the Back Table Podcast. I would just encourage everybody to do is just keep in mind how vulnerable these parents are. When we think about what happens down the road with these kids with regards to whether they're getting sick or whether the kids have aversive behaviors, some of that is driven by what the parents are doing. And because we're relying so much on the families to execute the plan, to report symptoms, to not force feed kids, to do those types of things, I would just have have a lot of empathy for these families as you are working your way through the treatment and try not to be dismissive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have a very brilliant guest today. I have Dr. Nikila Rao. She's a pediatric ENT and associate professor of otolaryngology at Emory University in Georgia. She practices at Children's Health of Atlanta and is here today to talk to us about pediatric dysphagia. Welcome to the show, Nikila. Thanks so much, Gopi. I'm excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Okay, yeah. I trained mostly in Texas. And after my fellowship in Boston, I came down to Atlanta to join uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And I spent uh, a couple of extra years in Boston doing my Master of Public Health. And when I was shaping my practice, I really wanted to develop a niche that was applicable to population health level. And so I, I know when talking to my mentors and whatnot, I had, a, had an airway interest, but one of them had said, you know, what about chronic swallowing issues? That's just something that we don't have enough data on and have enough people really working on from a research perspective. So I really got interested in that. And I kind of started in a smaller population with the congenital heart disease patients and have really expanded into kids with feeding and swallowing difficulties of all types. The other part of my practice is primarily in refractory sleep apnea. So I primarily focus on sleep and swallow issues in kids. So the MPH program, that was you did after your fellowship? Yes, I did that after my clinical year. And I had an inkling that I wanted to do it when I started fellowship, but I had a wonderful mentor and my fellowship director. And he really encouraged me to think outside the box from a research perspective and kind of pushing the field perspective. And that's really what drove me to move forward with getting that additional training. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about how patients present to you guys. Tell us a little bit about the clinic at CHOA. Yeah. So we're super unique and I'm really spoiled. So I'm going to say this from my perspective, but I hope one day it's you can duplicate this anywhere. So obviously, aerodigestive clinics are pretty common now, especially in freestanding children's hospitals and academic centers. But we have both an aerodigestive clinic and a dysphagia management clinic, and we affectionately call it Aerolite. <laughs> um, and it was born actually out of our behavioral feeding program, which is one of only, I think now I think there's 14 or 15 around the country. But those really focused on kids who had something called ARFID or avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which if you follow the literature now, a few years ago, there was a diagnosis that kind of encompassed all of it called pediatric feeding disorder. So we have the dysphagia kids, but also the behavioral kids. And we really wanted to have a more focused clinic, especially for these infants, these really small kids. Maybe they didn't have the pulmonary issues as yet, but we wanted to have a place for them to go. Maybe they were being discharged with an NG tube or maybe they were breastfeeding and were having coughing and choking, things like that. So we started this clinic. It's ENT, GI, speech and nutrition. And, you know, if they really have airway issues, they've had those pulmonary complications and we shunt them over to aerodigestive and vice versa sometimes those patients will come back over to our dysphagia management clinic. And luckily, I'm in both clinics, so that certainly helps. Now, when we talk about how patients present to us, we get a whole range of types of patients. You know, when I first started, it was typically like coughing and choking with feeding or had a swallow study that was abnormal and, and the typical ways that arrow kids get to us. But now I see a lot of kids are like the parents just say they don't look comfortable when they're feeding or Something just seems off. It, and it may or may not be aspiration per se, but I have started to think of dysphagia as a much more of a continuum. You know, dysphagia is just difficulty swallowing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going the wrong way. So that has really changed how our patients come in to our practice. 
So really, it's typically kids who have some kind of dysfunctional feeding. And these kids are getting some kind of medical workup if they were going into the behavioral side anyway. And so if they seem to have some difficulty with the actual process of chewing and swallowing and and things like that, then they'll get shunted into our clinic. Who's making the referrals primarily to you? Or are some of the families finding you independently? Because I would imagine some of the families have probably seen several providers and there's still some sort of discomfort. At mealtime, is just stressful for everybody. Nobody's enjoying it. And so how are the referrals to you? Yeah, you nailed it on the head. I mean, we get some, they started coming from the speech pathologist who were doing the initial evaluations. And some of them were just clinical evaluations and some of them were swallow studies. And I will back up and say that the impetus for this clinic was really based on the need for a fees clinic. And then it just blew up into this wonderful multidisciplinary clinic where we kind of, we just look at every aspect of feeding. So we'll get a lot of them come from the speech language pathologists after evaluations. And then we get a fair number from community providers who just don't know where else to send the kids. And then we do get some self-referrals because of word of mouth. Tell me about uh, percentage by age. Sounds like this initially started out maybe just for infants, but then yes. if it's like, you know, some of the behavioral stuff, you get older kids, toddlers, kids, adolescents. What's the breakdown in terms of age? So. The majority are under one, but we also get a fair number of kids who have been worked up for all the routine stuff. Even some who get, they've had their major workup done through the Air Digestive Clinic and they're, they've been stabilized. They're healthy. They're no longer having all those major medical issues. But then they're coming to us to see what can we do to normalize their swallowing. Just because we have a, sometimes have a little different perspective. It's fresh pair of eyes. So I would say the majority are still under one, but we get those kids who are in the two to five range. And then sometimes we'll actually get these much older kids who they tell us something doesn't feel right. And so those are great kids for our clinic because we can actually be pretty creative with how we work them up and then what kinds of interventions we're offering from both a strategies perspective and then even from a surgical perspective. You just said worked up for routine stuff, a routine workup. Tell me sort of what is the routine stuff that, you know, on everybody's kind of initial list, I guess, and the routine workup, what do they come in with already or what have you already, what have they already ruled out? Yeah, pretty much everybody has had, let's say they're coming from a different set of providers. A lot of times they've already had the triple endoscopy, looking for a cleft. They've had swallow studies. They may have already had a cleft injection. They may have had something, you know, when I was training, I feel like we really focused a lot on do they have a laryngeal cleft? Do they have vocal foot paralysis? Like these very surgical things. Like anatomic that... reasons. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, it's obvious this is what's happening. Yeah. And they just didn't, that didn't fix it. And so, the, the, so trip, again, typically they've had video fluoroscopic swallow studies, not necessarily a fees. Because I think where, where I practice, because of what we've created, a fees is almost standard of care in a lot of these patients. But I don't think that's necessarily true everywhere because obviously fees are time consuming and they can be difficult to perform. And so I think you have to have the right team for that. So really, it's like swallow study, triple endoscopy, some type of intervention like cleft injection or even sometimes cleft repair. And they've been worked up for eosinophilic esophagitis. They've been looked at for tracheobronchobalacia, um, things like that, that once you've checked those boxes, that's often when they just need a different set of eyes and, and some thinking outside the box, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell me the difference in sort of symptoms or patient presentation from the infant side to like the toddler. And for the infants, I've always been curious, how different is it maybe under three to six months to your nine to 12 month infants? Yeah. So three to six months, I think, or under three months, I think it's most commonly we're seeing these kids who are breastfed and coughing and choking with breastfeeding. and may have some typical latch issues. So I will say, I know it's super controversial and we're not going to get into the big tongue tie conversation (laughs) here, but I think that's one where some of these families, when they come to us at that age range, they are having difficulty breastfeeding or they already had procedures done, like they went somewhere and got a tongue, their tongue tie clipped and it didn't fix them. And so we're looking at what else could it be? Certainly, um, something that's impairing the suck swallow breathe mechanism uh, is is really common. I would say the most two most common things we probably see are uh, laryngomalacia and ankyloglossia in that age group, which doesn't mean that we always have to do surgery 
we have a brilliant speech-language pathologist in our clinic. She's just amazing because she is actually also now IBCLC certified. So she has the lactation consultant knowledge and the speech-language pathologist knowledge. She's been doing this for 15, 20 years. So we really think about ways to allow the child to allow them to use strategies to really optimize their feeding without saying, oh, this automatically needs surgery. And so that means maybe things like side lying or pacing or even mom, if you're breastfeeding, reclining back and feeding and things that, you know, help the kiddo just allow, allow them to mature without condemning them to an intervention immediately. All these parents who come to us are really desperate, right? That, that's, a, I think, what we have to think about in, in feeding, just as you said. It, it is such a such a huge part of life. And we think about our own kids, how much we watch them while they're eating throughout all, you know, many stages of life until probably until they leave our houses. Yeah. Or every holiday surrounded yes, by about yes. the meal, the food, like what are we going to eat? Absolutely. You know? yeah. Absolutely. So I really think of these families as, as a vul- very vulnerable population. And so I try to be careful about recommending surgery or saying that oh, this is going to be an instant fix. Because even surgery, even after that, you do often need to do more than that, whether it's therapy or other strategies to optimize your feeding. So so yeah, I think that's really important when you're thinking about these families is to just keep in mind how vulnerable the parents are, Yeah, especially when the kids are under three months. And then once they get to like, you know, nine to 12 months, are these the babies that they were fine with breast milk, but now we're trying solids or, well, they always had something going on, but they kind of slid by and now it's an issue. Yeah, I think you you touched on both types of presentations that we see. So sometimes we'll see that they were just getting by okay. And now they're introducing the spoon and they can't really maneuver things well in their mouth. And they may be coughing and choking on these things, or they may just be refusing I think one extreme case I can actually think of is a kid who came to the behavioral program around 11 months of age and had had some breastfeeding issues early on, but not an obvious tongue tie that I think someone would say, oh, just clip it and it'll fix everything, and had begun to refuse feedings, had an NG tube placed, ended up coming to the program because was refusing solids, all these things, and actually ultimately got a G-tube. But at the same time that they got the G-tube, because our astute speech-language pathologist said, it just seems like they can't lateralize their tongue well with with purees and stuff, other solids that they're taking. And so we said, okay, they're already going under for the G-tube. Let's just clip it and see if it fixes it. And literally in the feeding program, the next three meals, they were already taking much more by mouth. And the behaviors we think of like packing and anterior expulsion and things like that, that we don't normally think about for typical dysphagia aspiration type of stuff, that significantly improved. So you do get that stuff in the history early on if you ask for it. But at that time, it doesn't necessarily seem like a big issue because there's no obvious anatomic issue that we can just say, oh, this will fix everything. Now, I once had someone say to me, dysphagia is not an emergency. And absolutely, I agree with that statement. But I do think of it as somewhat of an urgency because now I see these kids in the whole uh, spectrum of pediatric feeding disorder when if we don't manage the dysphagia early, then it starts to become behavioral in nature because it doesn't feel good. You know, it's either a lot of work to feed or it's going the wrong way or things like that that has really changed how I support these families and also the urgency with which we do something for them. Well, and every once in a while, especially if it's a newborn, you know, the first four to six weeks, you worry about weight and failure to thrive. And do you have babies like that? And to where you're like, maybe you need to go to the ER. Are there any red flags that you can tell us about? Yes. So I would say definitely weight is a big issue. So we trend weight really closely. We also look at if they have severe nasal congestion. And that could be, you know, we think about rhinitis of infancy and things like that, typically like we do as a laryngologist. But we find that sometimes if they're not strong, like their oral skills are not strong enough, they could actually have some nasopharyngeal regurgitation because they're not pushing the liquid down with enough force or they're not controlling it well enough that some some of it actually goes up their nose. So and then, of course, uh, with like laryngomalacia and suck swallow breed and things like that, those are going to affect their ability to gain weight. So sometimes what we do is if we feel really like a kiddo is it's not appropriate for outpatient management, there's not time we do think of as more urgent or emergent. We will send them 
to get admitted and get an NG tube placed with the plan for doing as much workup or intervention as we can as an inpatient. And then just making sure that the kid has adequate nutrition with the feeding tube, but also working up all of the potential causes so that hopefully the feeding tube is very much temporary. Yeah. Talking to one of my partners in Dallas, Felicity Lene Soit, she was on for tongue tie. You know, mm-hmm. she, feeding is important to her. She sees a lot of the feeding kids. And every once in a while, she would, you know, have these infants in clinic. And it's a hard call to make of do you admit, do you not admit? And, yeah. uh, you know, fortunately, we have good pediatric colleagues that can kind of talk us through it or the hospitalists that are, yeah, that makes sense or, you know, no. Tell me about some of your older kids. By then, can we say this is definitely not a liquids issue because y'all got through formula and milk or wait a second. No, you can still have liquid aspir, you know, aspiration on thins or, you know, it's not always going to be solids and textures at that age. Tell me about that group. Yeah. So I think that group that we see, some of those referrals come from pulmonology where it's like they have a diagnosis of asthma or something like that, or they're not sick per se. There's something that's a little bit off and they just happen to get a swallow study. And the parents are totally surprised when they get these findings. And that's one of those I think you can send to either aerodigestive or a dysphagia-specific clinic. But in those cases, the nice thing is the kids often tell us what's wrong. And they're pretty, in our world, we think of it as part of the treatment process and part of the, you know, decision-making as to do we want to do intervention or do we want to do therapy or whatnot, because they can participate a little better. You know, we often use, in all ages, we often use a thickener wean. I don't know how much that's used everywhere. But that's just one example. I'm thinking of a strategy in our older kids that sometimes we'll use that we let them tell us when, if they're switching the thickness of the liquids as we're weaning, they can say, oh, this this doesn't feel good. This is going the wrong way. And they'll actually tell their parents, uh, you know, they'll start refusing. So I think that's where refusal behaviors are probably more evident because the kids are telling the parents that yeah. this doesn't feel good. And we really make them part of the treatment process. The other thing that in those older groups that I love is when we do a fees, they're often more compliant or or, or participatory. And so we can try some different things and they'll kind of talk with us about, hey, this doesn't feel good or this, they're not screaming and crying. So we can try some different things with them. I wouldn't rule out that it's a liquid issue. It, it, It still could be. It's just that again, they were like limping along and this was incidentally found because they had these other symptoms. Yeah. Tell me about some of the comorbidities some of the patients have. You mentioned the cardiac kids. What other medical comorbidities do some of the patients have? Or, you know, and what percent are otherwise no past medical history? We are a last step for a lot of these people. So we do see kids who have no other issues, but probably the routine consult we get are going to be your cardiac kids, premature kids, um, and that includes like BPD type of stuff. So that so the respiratory component is affecting them, but also just straight up preemies who maybe don't have lung disease, but don't have the skills either. Their oral skills didn't develop appropriately. We see a fair number of kids with some hypotonia, but often these are the kids who are like maybe your Downs kids or CP kids who are functional enough to eat something by mouth, but maybe need some strategies or maybe even an intervention to get them over the hump. I will say I've seen some kids with the deep intraretinoid notches in the Downs population who for our normal kid, this may not have caused issues, but for these particular kids, they are causing issues because they have oral control problems also. And so I think you definitely think of this those kids with comorbidities in a little bit different way, right? You don't just say, oh, anatomically, there's nothing obvious. You think of it more as, well, it's a second hit with what they already have. So maybe you'll be a little more aggressive in trying something to take away that minor anatomic issue. That's interesting. Tell me about the cardiac kids. Because when I think of the cardiac kids, I think of vocal cord weakness, paralysis. Is that only a a part of the cardiac? Tell me a little bit about that. Because I think of this anatomic issue, but it sounds like there's more to it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I will say when I first started down this whole journey, we started with the vocal fold paralysis patients. That was our first group of patients that we actually, my research started with screening for vocal fold motion impairment and how that affects NG tube placement and how that affects their feeding in the long term. And what we found was that there's a lot of kids in the cardiac population who the dysphagia and the vocal fold issues are often separate. 
actually, there's a nice paper from the Texas Children's Group, Julina Ancasua, and she's done some great work in the cardiac population as well, and has actually shown that there are kids with aspiration whose vocal folds are just fine. So we know some of it's sensory, some of it's skill. And I suspect that, you know, even if the recurrent laryngeal nerve is not cut, there are some sensory branches also that are there that are affecting the sensation. And, and that is something that we definitely see just takes time to recover. We also see aversion in those kids for sure. I know it's scary for the cardiac team to say, Let's let them try because this is a population where one hit can be devastating, right? Can be life-threatening if they aspirate once. And so they tend to be a little heavier handed with saying NPO, whereas we're, we try our best to not make kids NPO. That's one of the things that I really change is like, just let them do something, even if it's water, even something, so they're not losing those skills. And so the cardiac kids, I would say, have just have all the same potential causes for swallowing and feeding difficulties that any other kid has. It's just that they it probably impacts them more because they're also dealing with the cardiac defect. You know, I've taken I've certainly like laryngomalacia um, and uh, vocal fold paralysis, ankyloglossia, sometimes uh, laryngeal cleft, all those same things. But sometimes it's really just endurance. And so we try to slowly ramp them up and maybe we don't have to do anything. And I've seen plenty of kids where the vocal fold motion did not return to normal, but the feeding did or the dysphagia resolved. And we had a good systematic review a few years ago that shows that, that resolution of vocal fold motion or movement impairment is not directly linked to resolution of dysphagia. I think it's important to, to remember that. Now, I would also argue that if you have kids who are going to be NPO and you have a cardiac unit that is a little more willing to be aggressive with trying to not make them NPO, Seidel's group out of Stanford showed that you can inject these kids really early and maybe and 70% and of those kids are able to liberalize their diet. So maybe just as a temporary measure until they get stronger, until they figure out swallowing whether or not the vocal fold movement recovers, you can consider that. Um, and perhaps that will avoid some of the aversion issues later down the road because they've been able to continue to eat by mouth. That's cool. Tell me about questionnaires. Do you use questionnaires in this clinic? And is it age dependent? Do we have that in PEDS, like a PEDS dysphagia questionnaire? Yeah. So there are actually a fair number of questionnaires out there. Now, I will be totally honest, I haven't been as good with using questionnaires as I would like to be, but some of the ones that we have used are the Feeding Swallowing Impact Survey, and that one's out of uh, Hopkins. It's Maureen Lefton-Greece's work. If you want to read good Pete's dysphagia stuff that not necessarily out of ENT, but it's out of the speech world, I, I would really encourage people to look at the speech literature. Because I think as otolaryngologists, who, if you specialize in dysphagia or if you see patients with dysphagia, period, really knowing their literature is just as important as knowing our literature because I think we're more than just a surgical specialty. You know, we, we definitely do the medical side too. She's developed this nice survey that we will use as much as if I can remember to, but feeding swallowing impact survey is a good one. I like to use the functional oral intake scale to, or the FOIS to track a patient's progress. Now that was actually developed for adults, stroke patients, but it's the same principle. It just, you know, you get graded on a scale of, are you completely tube dependent? Do you need modification of your diet? Are you completely normally orally fed? And so um, I think that's nice just to see how patients are progressing. There is the SWALQUAL, or there's a Swallowing Quality of Life Survey, which is, again, in adult patients, but you can adapt it for pediatric patients. And I've talked to some colleagues who have done that. I know Derek Lamb has used that in his air digestive clinic up in Oregon. and. The other group that has some nice surveys is if you go on the Feeding Matters website, they're a wonderful organization that really is just focused on improving outcomes and efficacy for pediatric feeding disorder. They're great. And so they have some nice surveys on there that you can use for all different age groups. There is a um, survey for breastfed babies only, for breast and bottle fed for bottle fed, and then getting into your pediatric group. So I love those surveys because they look not only at the swallowing component, but also the feeding component. 
So it's a holistic way of looking at at feeding and making sure we're not missing some of these other other symptoms that might actually be tipping us off. There's a component of dysphagia, but not necessarily specifically choking and gagging with feedings or recurrent pulmonary infections or things like that. Well, the whole questionnaire and survey things, I, you know, in terms of how to use it, I have the same, not just remembering to make sure they fill it out, but where do I hold that information and how accessible yeah. is it for me to look back and compare can make it so that using a survey, sometimes you're like, uh, I need to, you know, follow this, but <laughs> that, that'll be a you're podcast right. at a different time. We'll find somebody yes. that's got a system. <laughs> yes. And there are people who have gotten really right. good at yes. it. You gotta be, if you're good at Epic, if we have Epic and I'm sure yeah. a lot of places do, but I think the best way is to incorporate it into that because honestly, we do it by paper and that's yeah. why yeah, it doesn't, it's not consistent. Yeah. Tell me about your exam. So the patients in, in your clinic, yeah, what's your head and neck exam like? So I do a routine otolaryngology exam, but when I focus on, when I'm doing my initial exam, I'll look at tongue motion, lateralization, where the frenulum inserts into the tongue. I will tell you, I re- strongly dislike the terms anterior and posterior ankyloglossia. I just look at, for the kid, how much free tongue do they have and how much can they move it around? And then I'll look at the palate, how high arched the palate is. I'll look at the tonsils because tonsils can definitely impact feeding. I think that has been understudied. Honestly, I can only think of one study off the top of my head that was done subjectively um, with parents saying that swallowing improved when their tonsils were, kids had their tonsils removed for other reasons, but they did get better. So those are my routine things that I'll look at. Obviously, look at the palate, look for if there could be submucous cleft with bifidity of the uvula. If you come see me in clinic, you're probably going to get a fees. I'm probably, you know, that's just, that's what's become our, our part of our exam uh, and workup. So the initial, you know, initial regular physical exam focuses a lot on the oral cavity and oropharynx. Um, we'll also, I'll also look in the nasal cavity and see, do they have significantly narrowed nasal passages? Do they look very congested? As that can definitely impact the ability to coordinate sucking, swallowing, and breathing. Do you have any tips or tricks for the under three month, under five month with nasal congestion? Like those babies come in and yeah. it's like, okay, do lots of saline. Um, do you throw some nasonex at them? Is it reflux? Like how do you manage that? So I will typically, and I am not as scared to try some nasal steroids to tell you the truth. I typically do a three to five day trial of the dexamethasone eye drops and just say one drop on each side twice a day for three to five days. Usually I'll go up to five days, but I won't do beyond that. And it's for us, it's just a trial to see is the nasal congestion one of the biggest reasons for this feeding issues, swallowing issues? Is it really they can't breathe through their nose? From a reflux standpoint, I mean, I have had kids who where reflux is really impacting it. And we know that reflux can come all the way up. But I don't typically prescribe reflux meds anymore. I will get my GI colleagues to weigh in. And I strongly feel that we know it's not benign giving a reflux medication. And if you look at the NASPAGAN and ESPAGAN, which are the gastroenterology organizations for North America and Europe, if you look at their guidelines, they do not advocate for doing reflux medications in these young babies. Not to say that reflux isn't problematic, but they would advocate trying different things first. Again, I'm lucky to work with some great GI colleagues who can help guide it, but I will try those nasal steroids drops. If parents tell me that they get more congested during a feed, and let's say when I do my scope exam, I'm seeing, or when I'm doing the feeds, really, I'm seeing like liquid come up the nose or things like that. If there looks like any kind of tethering of the tongue, I'll have a low threshold eclipse honestly, because if it's low risk and the parents are on board, they're okay with that. I tell them we can try it. It may not fix it, but we do have some data that suggests or or some at least anecdotal data that suggests this might help. And, you know, I have a very thorough conversation with the families if we're going to consider that kind of intervention, but maybe not under three months, but Around six to seven months, I'm not scared to try Flonase. Yeah. To I've, tell you the truth. I, yeah. You know, I know. And I always tell the parents it's not FDA approved in this age group, but kids typically do well. And we're not going to leave it on indefinitely. We have a plan to come off of it. And so I think, you know, this is where shared decision making is super important in this population. And, and what are the goals for the family? But yeah, I try not to 
ignore nasal congestion. We do try to be a little more aggressive than just saline and and suction. (laughs) Now, I will say that this is all in addition to the saline and suction. And I think some nice tools have come on the market, like with beyond just the bulb suction or nose freedom. Yeah. (laughs) You know, some of these electrically powered suction. Dr. Nose Best. Steve Gaddy is best. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And full disclosure, that's my boss. So <laughs> not trying to promote, but I know he's been on the show with yes, you. Yes, he has um, about cleft care and on entrepreneurship and yes. uh, and the device and how yes. his story. So, yeah. yeah. And so I think that that's a great temporizing measure that's still more aggressive than just saying wait it out, but not as aggressive as medical, uh, trying medication or um, surgical intervention. So those are, I think there's a lot of options besides just saying, oh, sorry, yeah. this will just get better. <laughs> In terms of the nasal steroid spray for Flonase, how long do you have them trial it for? And then what's the long-term plan for some of these babies? Yeah, typically I tell them to do at least for four to six weeks. Um, just to, you know, we know after two weeks is when you really get the maximum effect. And we'll see if there's any improvement. You know, when they get to the nine to 10 month range, I will consider the impact of the adenoids. If they have no adenoid tissue That's one thing. But if they have some enlargement, I will offer that if we're taking them to the operating room for anything else. They're snoring significantly. Now, one thing I always tell my residents, well, I've also changed in how I do my exam, is that when I'm listening to kids breathe, coarse strider can also sound like stertor. So we might think it's nasal congestion, but it could actually be some arytenoid floppiness that sounds exactly the same. So that's where doing a fees can be helpful because when the kids are crying really hard and they're contracting everything, you might not see that vibration of the arytenoids and that floppiness. But then when you ask them to do another task like feed while they're while we're scoping them, that might actually be more evident. And so that's one thing I always tell people. It may seem like it's all up here but it could actually be coming from here because that space is just so small. And so if the Flonies, let's say they it works, how long then is it like a three to six month thing, a yeah. three month thing? or Yeah, I usually say three months and then let's try coming off of it. And hopefully that has given them enough time to grow. grow. Yeah. Exactly. And we're introducing other foods then. We're also introducing different positions for feeding. Um, they're not laying back. You know, they're sitting up more. Often they have their stronger oral tone so that hopefully if there was a little bit of nasopharyngeal reflux, that's not happening so much anymore and things like that. So about three months. I usually don't go beyond three months in these really young kids. All right. Let's talk about the fees. So tell us sort of what is your setup like? What are some of the tricks or tips that you have that seem to work with you? How do you if you can't see or, you know, how do you know when to stop or temporize the situation? So I think. Well, the most important thing is to have a really good speech language pathologist who is comfortable with fees and not just comfortable with fees, but comfortable with kids being uncomfortable during the (laughs) exam. You know, we've seen that at least in infants under one, under maybe like 10 months and under, we can typically get them to calm enough to get something in them. And so you might have to wait two or three minutes for them to calm down. So don't give up. That's the biggest advice I would give you is don't give up too quick. And you have to prep the families for this too. We do allow parents, if they're comfortable, to stay in the exam room with us. I always advocate for the parent, unless we're breastfeeding, for the parent not being a part of the feeding. So I don't like to associate that. For, I don't like the kids to have that association uh, as much as possible. So on our good days, when we have two SLPs available, one will hold the baby I will drop the scope and then the other will feed the baby. And if we don't, then we'll, we'll involve the parents if we don't have another choice, if we only have one SLP available. But we will always make sure the parent is comfortable with being the bad guy a little bit. So we do use green dye. Uh, I know some other places have talked about using a white dye because of how it sticks to the surrounding tissues. But we like the green. It has worked well for us. So when we're doing breastfeeding fees... Um, You can either come from in front of the baby or come over the shoulder of mom to me, whatever is more ergonomically feasible for you. And then we'll usually let the baby start feeding first and then we'll pull off, put a little green dye either in the mouth or on the nipple, mom's nipple, and then let them start feeding again. Now, it doesn't always work. The green doesn't always make it where we want it to. But even the breast milk has some 
color to it. So it's usually enough for us to be able to see. Worst case scenario, if we cannot get a baby to calm down, we do take a little liquid in a syringe and we'll squirt it into the cheek. And then that forces them to control it as best as we can. We always note all of these things on our documentation. So we know, you know, this is not a natural way that the baby feeds squirting something with their mouth. Um, but it can help us identify potentially a site of entry. When we're doing bottle feeding, we'll try multiple different thicknesses. We'll try different nipple flow rates. And then if the baby's old enough, we'll try some purees. Like I said, the two keys are having patience and having a good SLP. And then if you just cannot get good information, if they're just not cooperating, we'll just pull the scope out and do a clinical evaluation. You were talking about when you can't see. Usually when you can't see, at least in my experience, it's one of two things. One, it's the baby just can't hold still enough. And those days I'll say, uh, the baby won. <laughs> we lost. We lost this battle. Maybe that happens about 15, 20 percent of the time. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that I do, I should say there's two other things that will affect that. One is secretions. So we do have suction handy and we'll try to clear the secretions as much as we can. Um, and that actually might uh, impact my management, right? I might actually think of giving them medication for secretion control. Or if I see nasopharyngeal regurgitation, that can cloud my scope. And just for those people who don't do a lot of fees, just for your uh, knowledge, when, when we're doing a fees, you can't actually see what's happening during the swallow because the pharyngeal uh, muscles all squeeze the camera, right? And so we use what's happening before and after, really, to guide our next steps. But as far as not seeing anything, that's usually one of those three things, right? Baby is just not standing, staying still enough and is moving around way too much. There's a bunch of secretions or you're having regurgitation, which is clouding your camera, which is also super useful information. And so on the fees, in terms of what you're looking for and documenting, pulling of secretions, mm -hmm. pulling of residual, you know, milk mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever you fed them, sensation. Tell, tell me about what you document. Yeah. So starting with just insertion of the camera, if babies are not that reactive when we put it in, we do start to think of neuro issues because how many babies are going to be comfortable with you just shoving a right. scope down their nose? Even babies now, are going to feel that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, if a baby has an NG tube in, I will actually put the camera in on the same side as the NG and just follow the NG down. I know it seems like you're taking up too much space in there, but it's better than taking up both sides. And the camera goes down so nicely if you're just following the NG too. So then when we get to the back, the things I'm typically looking for, as I said already, I'm looking at nasal regurge, I'm looking at residue, I'm looking at timing. So if you're having, you're having premature spillage, why are they having premature spillage, right? Is it an oral control issue? Is it simply a immaturity issue? Is it hypotonia? Those are the types of things that we'll think of. I'll also look at the anatomic components. So I have some kids who, you know, they might outgrow their laryngomalacia from a strider perspective, from a breathing perspective. But then when I do the fees, I might see that their arytenoids are actually a little floppy and it drags the liquid in with the arytenoid flopping in. And so that is not impeding the airway, but it's actually an anatomic conduit into the larynx or into the glottis and the trachea. The other thing I've seen with laryngomalacia is if you have tight AE folds and maybe not so tight that the epiglottis is so curled that it's narrowing the supraglottis, but tight enough where you're not getting epiglottic inversion and it sits, I kind of think of it as in my, I call it, we call it a red carpet entry into the into the <laughs> larynx. Um, and it's like the liquid just comes straight down from the tongue, straight through that little funnel and goes, uh, and goes directly into the glottis. And so those are some of the things I'm looking at. The nice thing about, when we think about, is, this is the cleft really the issue? We definitely can see interarytenoid penetrations beautifully. And so that makes me comfortable in saying, hey, if I need to take you for a DLB, I'm going to inject that. It might not be the only cause, but I think that there, you'll see some improvement. And I have a little more confidence when I'm seeing just like a, you know, because we see these deep notches and things like that all the time. We're like, is it really the issue? I don't know. Yeah. But if I have a fees that has shown me interretinoid penetrations, I feel more confident. 
The other things that we might see is retrograde movement through the cricopharyngeus or pulling, like not lack of opening of the cricopharyngeus. I'm also looking at like a postcricoid cushion that might be impeding liquid entering the esophagus. So, you know, lots of things that we couple it with the uh, video fluoroscopic swallow study results. And I feel like we get a really nice, complete picture. That was going to be my next question. So the patient comes in, you get a thorough history, you do your exam, you do the fees. Do they all get a video swallow or who are the kids then also need that in addition? I mean, I understand that, you know, you, you have different information from both, but let's get into that a little bit. So if it's a breastfeeding baby, I'm honestly not going to rely on my video swallow mainly because it's not fair to the kid, right? They, they don't have any practice with the bottle. They don't actually, that's not their primary mode of feeding. And so it's rare. Now, if I'm really concerned and let's say we're trying to see if the way to keep this kid safe is to switch them from breastfeeding to bottle feeding, because we can do more issues with flow rate control and thickening and nipple changes, things like that, then I will have them start practicing on the bottle. And after they've had a little practice with the bottle, then I'll get the video fluoroscopic swallow study. In our institution, it takes about six to eight weeks to get one. Yeah. So by the time we order one and they've had enough time to practice, then we'll get it. If I have a child who is, if we're not talking about breastfeeding, they're bottle feeding or they are using straws and cups and other modalities, and we just couldn't get enough information from the fees, then we'll get one. Like if they didn't tolerate it well or their timing is so good that during the whiteout, I can't see anything and there's no residual, there's no premature spillage, anything like that. And I really need to know if this is going down the wrong way, then those are the other kids that would get a video fluoroscopic swallow study. Most of our kids have come to us after already having one, unless they're the breastfeeding only babies. And then do you ever get bariums? Like if you see something at the cricoid, is that who you get a barium or is this where GI kind of steps in or? Yeah. So what we'll try and do if we need to get a barium softgram, like if we're seeing retrograde movement or we're seeing that the cricopharyngeus looks like it may not be opening, we'll just get them together. Like we'll do the video fluoroscopic swallow study and we ask them to just get the barium softgram at the same time. And that's the nice thing about having GI right there is that, and we often will turn it into an upper GI series. We'll just follow it all the way through. And again, having that multidisciplinary mindset right at the beginning it's helpful because you're limiting the number of exams they're getting and the amount of radiation that they're exposed to, things like that. So, so yeah, we'll definitely get that if we have worry about past the larynx. And then, you know, when we think of swallowing, we think of function. And so the workup is mostly functional, like a fees or video swallow. Is there any role for labs? Like, do you ever get labs? Is there any role for that? So I think most of our lab issues are going to be when we're worried about FPIs or anything like allergy mediated or when we're talking about our eosinophilic esophagitis kids. Again, we're looking at allergy mediated or, or eosinophil mediated mechanisms. Other labs, you know, because we're in a feeding setting, we will do some nutrition workup to make sure there's no deficiencies. And so those are the primary things I would say we look at from a lab standpoint. From a dysphagia perspective, I wouldn't say we re routinely have a bunch of labs we look at, except from a GI pathology perspective. If we're worried about neuromuscular issues, and the thing that we often will look at is myasthenia gravis is one thing that we will think about, we'll talk to neurology and we might send off some labs for that. But otherwise, I wouldn't say we routinely get labs. And then in terms of other imaging modalities like CT chest, CT neck, an MRI brain, are those ever indicated? And who are you thinking about? Absolutely. So I would say the kids, if we're talking about CT chest, those kids are probably are in our aerodigestive clinic. And sometimes we use those when we have concern for any vascular compression that might be causing if there's noisy breathing and dysphagia uh, and whatnot, if we're worried about vascular compression. Now, mind you, these kids have typically already had a endoscopy, like a flex bronch or, or DLB. And we have suspicion. The other times that we have used it is if we have parents who are a little bit in denial uh, of what's going on and they really are nervous about intervention and, and they really think their kids are okay. The CT chest, you know, when we see those signs of long-term impact of the chronic aspiration, then they seem more willing to be more aggressive with, with management. MRI brain is a great question. I don't usually get MRI brains until kids are at least two years old. And that's for two reasons. One is 
The yield is not super high, although we just had a retrospective series that was published that showed that Chiari or abnormality at the brainstem is definitely more common in these kids with dysphagia, but it's still not that common. And the willingness or how enthusiastic neurosurgery is to intervene is fairly low because it's a huge procedure, right? You're talking about shunting these kids often if you are seeing any a little bit of prominence of the cerebellar tonsils. Is that enough to say it might fix the dysphagia? Because it might not. You might go through this big procedure and they still have dysphagia issues. We've had a couple of success stories of kids who had Chiaris and then had a a neurosurgical intervention and got better, but it's not a sure bet that that's going to fix it. The things, so it's just typically in my kids who are two years of age, have not had any response to any other interventions, and maybe you're seeing other signs like a bunch of pharyngeal residue or other delays that maybe are making you think this could be a primary neuro issue. That's when we start thinking about a brain MRI. Yeah, that's always a hard one because it also requires sedation. So yes, what's the overall sort of what's it going to gain me? You know, yeah, I will see sometimes if they've never had a airway evaluation under anesthesia and they are older when they came to me and they have some other concerns. Sometimes the parents will ask if we can coordinate the MRI and the endoscopy, and when we can do it, we'll do it. Yeah, because like you said, it's an additional sedation, and always trying to avoid that in the peds patients for sure. In terms of the triple scopes, so let's say the patient comes to you and they've had the triple scope. When do you consider repeating it? And what information do you want from the prior triple, triple scope? Like what are what is something the outside ENT can make sure that they've either snapped a photo of or checked for on, on the scope? So I would say the two things from an otolaryngology perspective that I you always look back at the pictures for. So first of all, always take pictures. So that we can see if you're referring to us or, or anybody who's maybe in an air digestive type setting. We all have different interpretations, I think, of what a meaningful deep notch or a cleft looks like. And so if I feel like, you know, what someone else called not a cleft or not a deep notch and didn't do any intervention, and oftentimes I'll have done, then done a fees and seen intraretinoid penetrations, or we just don't really have any other sources. I might take that kid back and go ahead and inject and see. Um, And I've had some families just say, can you just go ahead and repair it? Even if we're not sure, can you just repair it if, if if you feel like it's deep? And I will. It's rare that we're doing that immediately. But if it's already their second endoscopy, I'll have a much lower threshold to do that if the families ask. And the other thing I'll look at is, as I was saying about laryngomalacia, if, you know, sometimes we do those DLBs and they, their area epiglottic folds, look a little tight, right? But they don't necessarily have the classic laryngomalacia symptoms, then I would have a lower threshold, especially if I have a fees that shows some of those things I was talking about, like that entry through the epiglottis or a little bit of redundancy of the arytenoids. I would take them back to say, this might help. I will say that often if I'm doing anything from a laryngomalacia standpoint, I'm also injecting the interretinoid region, mainly because I have a hypothesis now, again, I haven't uh, tested this systematically, but I feel like there is some relationship between arytenoid floppiness or redundancy and deficiency of the interretinoid musculature. And I, w- I felt a little validated when uh, I went to the air digestive meeting this year and Gresham Richter uh, actually brought this up too. And he's done some good work in laryngomalacia. So he felt like there could be a connection there. <laughs> and so I was like, yes, I'm not crazy. <laughs> But um, but yeah, so often those are the probably the two things that at least anatomically I would go back and look for that maybe a, there's difference in perspective from otolaryngologist to otolaryngologist. There are some other functional things that we might do in, in the interim if we saw issues with like cricopharyngeal relaxation or we did manometry or, or things like that. I might do uh, cricopharyngeal Botox. I might, if I think that it's a tongue movement issue, I would take them back and repeat the DLB or or triple or double endoscopy and also just clip their tongue tie at the same time because we already have them under for something else. But I think those are the things to think about whether you are in an air digestive setting or not, just to check those off your list. And then, you know, you have your GI and your speech pathologist who's also a lactation specialist certified. 
there with you. For those of us who practice, you know, may not, they come into our general peds clinic or general ENT clinic. When should we start consulting our subspecialists? And, you know, is there an order in your mind? Or, you know, I, I found myself consulting speech right away, you know, especially in my younger, infant, you know, anytime actually for dysphagia. Um, and then in my younger ones, I would pretty much get GI and bird pretty early, specifically for the reflux stuff. Because again, like you said, the reflux meds, like, is this what we want to start, not start? And then for palms, sometimes I'm like, did I consult them too late? Because I didn't have a frank aspiration history. But, you know, is there something else going on? So how do you kind of organize that in your mind? So I 100% agree with you that every kid who has swallowing issues, you need a speech partner. You need an SLP working with you on it. Because again, we, we are surgeons. And everything is not a surgical problem um, when it comes to dysphagia. And so I would say there's probably more things that aren't a surgical problem that are than are a surgical problem. So having a great SLP uh, as part of your team is critical. I'd say that's the most critical. Now, involving GI, it's hard, right? Because as we know, especially in pediatric settings, it is not easy to get appointments. I mean, it is, you know, wait times are long. And so I think that if you are thinking about taking a child to the operating room, you absolutely should get GI involved because you're going to want to know, do they want to scope the kid? That's one thing. I mean, we've had some under one-year-old kids who have been diagnosed with eosinophilic esophagitis. And so I think that to me is probably the one where I'd say, get them involved. At least ask them, right, if they want to join you. And then other times, you're right, for, from a reflux perspective, you may not necessarily need to send them to GI, but I at least get GI's opinion if I'm considering starting reflux meds. And I make sure they have GI follow-up so that if I'm starting it, then GI will see them and see if there's been any improvement. Do we need to con continue it? Do they need any other workup for true reflux issues? Oftentimes, though, if you're working with speech, we try thickening first. And Rachel Rosen's group out of Boston Children's has wonderful work on that, how thickening is actually uh, a better start than automatically starting reflux events. And so if you are practicing by yourself, I would say, without a multidisciplinary team for all these kids, I would say get SLP on board for every patient that you see with dysphagia and then have a good GI colleague who you can turn to where you might just curbside them for some of these kids but also if you're considering like some of your more conservative measures haven't worked, like thickening, pacing, nipple change, things like that, then and you're thinking about being a little more aggressive with regards to intervention, you can ask them to join you for evaluation if needed. So you're talking about palm. I don't think palm is necessary in every kid unless they've had any kind of palm history. Like these kids who have, you know, you see those kids who come in with viral infections and that's what triggers their dysphagia or it's the first time you notice the dysphagia, those kids I typically do have palm involved because they've been started on Flovent or budesonide nebulizers, things like that, right? And so you want to make sure they're optimized from a lung health standpoint so you can be a little more aggressive or a little bit more trial and error from a dysphagia perspective because obviously you want to protect the lungs at all costs for sure. But then if they have a frank pulmonary issue, then we're going to get them involved for sure. In terms of medical and surgical therapies, we've talked about, you know, nasal congestion and saline and nasal steroid sprays and suctioning. We've talked about tongue tie and, you know, looking at the tongue and where the attachment is. We've talked about reflux and GI. We've talked about a little bit. And again, each one of these things can be its own two-hour podcast, but we've talked <laughs> a little bit about laryngeal cleft and, you know, inject, repair. Again, that's another topic, um, which would we should do another time. Um, and you also mentioned uh, the cricoid and the potential for Botox. We talked about speech path and feeding therapy, whether it's pacing, changing the nipple size. What else am I missing in the sort of tools or potential therapies that you can provide these patients? So from a behavioral perspective, I think that's the biggest one that we are lucky to have. And I would say that if you have that luxury that we have, if you really have kids who are having refusal behaviors, that you have them plugged in to a behavioral feeding program. If you don't have that, that's okay, but you want your feeding therapist to be comfortable with managing the aversion component too, 
meaning. And we've actually done that. Like our psychologists have gone out and educated some of the community folks who are, who are associated with our system, but not at the main campus, have educated them on how to manage some of the behavioral stuff. So you are working on their refusal behaviors while also advancing their diet. I think that's the other component that we as otolaryngologists, we will just chalk it up to, because it's not surgical, right? We can't just fix it. And I totally understand that. Again, I'm spoiled because I get 30 minutes to an hour with each of these patients, which is probably what they need, not a 15-minute visit, like a routine visit. So I would just run through all those things in your brain and say, maybe I need to also involve this person to get on that quickly and not let it get any worse. That's great. As we start to round it out, Nikila, any other final thoughts or pearls for our audience on pediatric dysphagia? Because I find it to be such a hard topic and you know, just kind of keeping it organized in my head of sort of how to manage it. So this is super helpful just to kind of see, understand how you think about it. So sometimes when I'm talking, I get like, like one thought leads to the next thought of how <laughs> when great. I'm thinking about these patients. So you're right. A lot of these topics could be, uh, we could talk about it for 45 minutes to an hour by themselves. I think if when you approach a patient with dysphagia, I think the first thing you need to do is figure out the urgency. The second thing you need to figure out is the parent's goals. And then the third thing that I would just encourage everybody to do is just keep in mind how vulnerable these parents are. When we think about what happens down the road with these kids with regards to whether they're getting sick or whether the kids have aversive behaviors, some of that is driven by what the parents are doing. And the parent is just as much the patient, in my mind, with these, with these families. And that's true for a lot of pediatric diagnoses. We know that. But because we're relying so much on the families to execute the plan, to report symptoms, to not force feed kids, to do those types of things, I would just have, have a lot of empathy for these families as you are working your way through the treatment and try not to be dismissive. And honestly, if it feels like you've done everything in your power, it's fine to send them to somebody else for a fresh pair of eyes. That's okay. That doesn't mean you've lost. I mean, I definitely even have, even though we are often last stop, I'm not afraid to say, I just have one of my colleagues just say, what do you think of this? You know, I've done this, this, and this. Is there something else that I'm missing? Do I just need to give them time? Do I need to just, for the better part of valor, say, I'm going to stop with all the interventions, let them grow, let them mature, let them learn. And that's okay. That's not defeat. We may not be able to get it perfect, but if we've done something to make this things better for this child and for this family, I've learned to take that as a win. And, and, and I think of dysphagia a lot of times as a marathon, not a sprint. So don't be defeated by <laughs> or don't feel defeated, you know, if you haven't fixed it in one, one go. Yeah. So can we tell, tell the audience about your Fulbright? Is that okay? Yeah. So congratulations. Absolutely. I'm super Thank excited. <laughs> I mean, it's a big deal. So Nikila has a Fulbright coming up in India. So tell us a little bit about your project and what you plan to do. I mean, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. You know, as I, I probably talked about tongue tie more on this show <laughs> than most people think of in dysphagia. Yeah. Um, but it's primarily because in our minds, at least, we think of it as a little bit of a novel target. We feel like it contributes to pharyngeal dysphagia. And I think one of the things that we see in in our country, in the U.S., and a lot of Western countries is, gosh, tongue tie is so controversial and there's so much bias. Some people really believe it's an issue and other people just say, no, it's not never an issue. And it's very difficult to do observational work here on that topic. So what I'm, I'm going to India, in the country where, um, or I should say in a state um, I'm going specifically to a state in the south central part of India called Telangana, which in that state, they have over double the rate of exclusive breastfeeding at six months. But they really don't think of tongue tie as an issue. Like they're traditionally taught that ankle glossia does not really impact breastfeeding. And so I'm just going to do observational work and see when these kids do have ankle glossia, what's happening with them. And then whether they do or don't have ankyloglossia, what are the tools or what are the special factors, specific factors that allow a mother to continue breastfeeding for six months or more? I mean, y'all probably know now the 
WHO and AAP recommend two years, which is pretty impressive, but it's a long time, but at least six months, right, for the health benefits. And so I'm just going to see, like, what happens if you don't treat it? And hopefully we can bring back those findings and have a more balanced approach and discussion about ankyloglossia in this country. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. I can't wait Thank to you. hear about your experience and basically come back what you teach us in our field. So it's super, super awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.